Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. We're continuing our podcast Bible study in the book of Revelation. And today we're looking at the letter to Thyatira, which is in Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. So in this devotional podcast episode, we're going to read the letter. We're going to look at the description of Jesus in the letter. We're going to talk about moral compromise in the church, especially in leadership, with a sidebar about spiritual warfare, probably. And we'll also consider the meaning of the prediction at the end of this letter that the church is going to reign and rule the nations. Today's format, I'm going to try something a little different. I'm going to go kind of like a line-by-line commentary style using the message paraphrase. So we'll read it, we'll talk about the background, and then we'll go line-by-line. Major credit for the Chronological Life Application Study Bible. I took a lot from that in these notes. The YouTube channel Lineage Journey, although I didn't agree with half of the stuff they said, I took historical context from them. And then Jackson Lawmeyer from Sheridan Church in Oklahoma. Okay, so here's the message paraphrase. We'll read that one first. To Thyatira, verse 18, write this to Thyatira, to the angel of the church. God's son, eyes pouring fire blaze, standing on feet of furnished bronze, says this. I see everything you're doing for me. Impressive. The love and the faith, the service and the persistence. Yes, very impressive. You get better at it every day. But why do you let that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet mislead my dear servants into cross-denying, self-indulging religion? The rest of you Thyatirans who have nothing to do with this outrage, who scorn this playing around with the devil that gets paraded as profundity, be assured I'll not make life any harder on you than it already is. Hold on to the truth you have until I get there. Here's the reward I have for every conqueror, everyone who keeps at it, refusing to give up. You'll rule the nations. Your shepherd king rule as firm as an iron staff, their resistance fragile as clay pots. This was the gift my father gave me. I pass it along to you. And with it, the morning star. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind words, the spirit blowing through the churches. Okay, that's the end of the message paraphrase of the letter to Thyatira. Now, immediately, I want to go to another translation. This is mostly for me because I have a little bit of ADHD and sometimes I tune out when scripture's being read in long chunks and I have to go back and listen again. So here's the new living translation. I really liked this letter in this translation. The message to the church in Thyatira. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the son of God, whose eyes are like flaming fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your consistent improvement in all these things. Woo. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. Those are common themes in this book, aren't they? I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her onto a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. My gosh. Then all the churches 
will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Almost there. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, as they call them. Depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority all over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my father. I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. And I want to note that the part about giving authority over all nations, ruling with an iron rod and smashing opposition like clay pots is in poem form because it's a reference to Psalm 2. We'll get to that. So here's a little bit of background before we go line by line. Thyatira was a military outpost. Now, remember last time I hopped on here, we talked about Pergamum or Pergamos. We're moving east here and we're looking at a military outpost that's basically there to protect the wealthy city of Pergamos. Lots of soldiers lived in Thyatira. It was a garrison city built to protect wealthy areas from invasions that would be coming from the east. So it's 25 to 30 miles east of Pergamos. And this city, Thyatira, was captured, destroyed, and rebuilt many, many times. And eventually became an industrial trade hub for like bronze and brass items to be made and sculptures as well as cloth, dyed cloth, red, purple, see Acts 16, 14. The workers that lived here all, pretty much all, belonged to trade guilds, okay, trade unions. Membership was required to like work in the city. This presented quite a conundrum for Christians, of course, because these guilds each had a patron god that they sacrificed animals to and did these weird cult, culty rituals to worship, which included sexual sin. Okay. So as a Christian, it was like, no, you can't be doing that. Any of that, worshiping other gods, committing adultery, all of it was just the opposite of Christianity. So it presented a little bit of a challenge to figure out how to make an income and live in this city and not compromise your faith in God. Okay. So the church of Thyatira, I've heard a lot of Bible teachers reference this church as the apostate church. And it's in the context of interpreting the letters to the churches as a chronological explanation of the global church over time. Of course, we've been the global church for 2000-ish years. And the apostate church represented by Thyatira is like a thousand years of it. The longest chunk, okay, would be Thyatira. Now, I dived into the explanations for this in the past week, and I don't buy it. I don't think, I, I'm personally not convinced, and I'm not going to tell you guys what to think, and some of you may have dived into this topic longer than me. I don't think the seven letters are necessarily the timeline of the global church. I just, I'm not, I'm not convinced of that. And then the way they described Thyatira as the apostate church was kind of a stretch anyway, but I'm throwing it out there because it's a really popular belief. Okay. We're going to go line by line using mostly the message. Paraphrase. Okay. Chapter two, verse 18. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from 
the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. Now, this is the only time in the letters that Jesus is described as the Son of God. So John kind of wrote these seven letters with tailored descriptions of Christ at the beginning of each of them. And this is the one where he says, the Son of God. So there's a serious tone right from the beginning. And then he uses these word pictures of things that this town would be familiar with, like fire and bronze. These are also common biblical references to judgment. Bronze represented judgment all throughout parts of the Old Testament scriptures. And eyes of fire make you think of a a God who is perfectly able to see exactly who is doing what and everything that's unholy comes to light before his perfect vision, his holy vision. The eyes of fire, when you see Christ in, in that metaphorical language, is saying that he's the only one that's holy and perfect enough to rightly judge every act of everyone. I'm not even just saying humans. I'm saying every, every entity and power and person that there is, he's the righteous judge and he alone. And that's why his eyes are fire, okay, in this metaphor. Okay, 19, verse 19. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Okay, this is really encouraging. And the rest of the letter is about to get a little serious. So it's cool that he says this first. He's saying with his eyes of fire, he sees each and every real act of worship for him, each and every obedient moment in this church, each and every person and everything they've laid down and sacrificed in faith to follow Jesus through these hard circumstances. He sees it all and it gives you good and faithful servant vibes. He's commending the faithful within the apostate church. This should be really encouraging because have you ever found yourself in a situation, a group, a culture, whether it's at work or school or some family dynamic or some group that you're in, place that you live, situation you're finding yourself in, that you don't have total control over other people and you can tell you're in a toxic environment in some way. I think the members that we're trying to do right in this church in Thyatira must have felt that feeling of, man, I can tell the context I'm in, the group around me is corrupt, but I only have control over me and I'm going to live my values. I'm going to live for God, even in this circumstance. And what does Jesus say about that? Does he throw you out with the bathwater because the people around you suck? No, he's perfectly righteous in his judgment. And he sees everything you've done, every moment that you've worshiped him with your life in every way that you have. And he commends you for it. I love that. He's such a kind God. The Lord knows you. The Lord knows you're following and honoring him in the midst of whatever you find yourself in. He judges fairly. Verse 20, but. Verse 20 says, but I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. Okay, 
you are going to see in the book of Revelation this problem over and over again. Eating food that was sacrificed to idols, meaning most likely participating in the rituals, okay, not just eating the food later, because Paul ends up saying that's sometimes all right. But the meat sacrificed to idols, participating in idol worship, aka, and sexual immorality, because idol worship pretty much always contains sexual immorality as well. So there's a person in the church, and Jezebel's not her real name, nobody's going to name their kid Jezebel, that's saying it's okay probably to worship these patron gods and goddesses of the guilds, probably because she figures everyone's got to make a living, we're not just going to sit here and starve to death as a church body, and she's teaching this religious apostasy or heresy that it's okay to just go ahead and participate in those guilds, participate in that idol worship. Okay, why does he call that Jezebel? Of course, we know there's an Old Testament character named Jezebel. Jezebel was a Phoenician worshiper of Baal that the Israelite king Ahab married, making her queen. He did so foolishly and disobediently, and it allowed her to influence the ancient Israelites into idol worship. So Jezebel is this figure in history that pulls Israel away from Yahweh. So like I mentioned, in this context, in Thyatira, there's probably someone in the church talking about the trade guilds like they're okay. Maybe a woman in the church was spreading the belief that immorality isn't that bad, especially to feed your family. Now, a lot of translations say you tolerate. The thing he rebukes in the church of Thyatira is that they tolerate this woman doing this, this influencer teaching this wrong thing. They tolerate it. I've seen, I've been involved in like lots of ministries and I've been a guest to a ton of ministries in the North American evangelical context in this day and age. And I've seen a lot of churches in our day tolerate. I mean, I've seen myself do this too, but tolerating certain sins like Letting certain sin be okay in the culture, letting certain corruption influence and take hold. It's not about kicking out everyone who has any type of sin or wrong belief, because that's everybody. You would have a church of zero people. It's about allowing it influence. It's about tolerating it. It's about never addressing it as sin. It's about letting it creep into the teaching and the culture and the ethos of the local body. We're called to address and rebuke harmful behavior, not adopt it, especially in leadership. So there's a little bit different standard, at least in my head, and what I've learned and been taught. If you're going to give someone authority or influence or power, if they're a leader in any of those ways, then they really can't be unrepentant about any any sin in their life, okay? The person who's going to be pedestaled or put into influential or leadership positions They have to be living an obedient life, not a perfect life, but a surrendered to God in every area, obedient life. Okay. If not, we're tolerating. So what sins do we commonly tolerate in our churches? Just off the top of my head, I think leader worship is one of them, like double standards, favoritism, leader worship, whatever you want to call that. Also vanity, pride, distraction from real personal relationship with God, right? We we emphasize anything and everything else sometimes besides discipling people into a personal one-on-one 
apprenticeship with Jesus, ongoing sanctification in Christ, selfishness sometimes, deceit sometimes, manipulation and control. I've seen affairs. I've seen adultery in leadership circles. I've seen cooking the books. I've seen gossip and reputation trashing. I've seen hidden, unrepentant drug addiction in leaders. I've seen narcissism disguised as leadership. I've seen a lot of good leaders too. Okay. I'm not trying to, (laughs) I get on this kick because I care about the holiness of the church and about doing things the way that God designed so that we can get the church body in North America back to a healthier spot. But I've also experienced, seen, and benefited from and been blessed by so many amazing leaders that fear the Lord and that live their lives in service to others in His name. Seen a lot of both. Now let's sidebar about spiritual warfare really quick. I believe, and I've been affected by this, attacked by this in my life in ministry. I believe there is a spirit or a network of demonic spirits, however that works, that many deliverance people call the Jezebel network. Okay. It's this kind of specific attempt from the enemy, specific entities in the enemy's camp that desire to infiltrate and compromise the church. And it's often present where there's witchcraft. Okay. Whether that's overt occult witchcraft type practices or whether it's kind of the more Christian whitewashed covert kind, which is manipulation control and micromanaging and other unholy power dynamics. That's also called witchcraft. If you, if you study the topic in scripture, both are called with witchcraft. So you don't necessarily have to be like identifying as a witch and doing occult practices. You can just be a control freak in your leadership and you're practicing the same vibe, the same spirit. A lot of times. So we got to watch out for high control systems. We got to watch out for cultiness in any sort of group, especially in church groups, right? Because we're trying to do right. We're trying to be good. We're trying to submit to leadership. So there's a big blind spot sometimes where power gets abused, um, even by people who start off really well-meaning. And that can be called oftentimes a Jezebel spirit or or a Jezebel attack on a church. Okay, so I could teach on that for like two hours straight. I won't, (laughs) but I've experienced seasons of really heavy warfare from this and had to learn a lot about it so that I could basically stand my ground and rebuke it out of my own life. And unfortunately, I've seen other people who were damaged in different ways from this type of attack from the enemy. So it's something to look into, learn about, and not partner with. The person that is operating in the Jezebel spirit, basically you can tell because they have no fear of God. They, they don't have like a healthy respect, reverence, adoration, and fear of God, meaning they're a little too okay with their sin. And in Thyatira, sounds like that's what was happening. Someone was a little too okay with compromise, with idol worship, with sin. And we see in Thyatira's church, three types of people. Those who followed the compromised leader or influencer, those who tolerated the compromised influencer, and those who had no part in her shenanigans. The first two types are rebuked. It's not just the people all in with her, following her. It's the people that tolerated her, that didn't do anything to combat the direction that the church was heading. Only the third type, only those who 
played no part in it, had no part in it, had no desire to connect with it, stayed clean. Those are the ones he commends. Verse 21, Jesus says, I gave her a chance to change her ways, but she has no intention of giving up a career in the God business. Y'all look at the Lord's patience. This person is teaching that it's okay to worship idols. Okay, let's just say that that historical assumption is true that many Bible scholars have landed on. You have this person in the church that's basically spoiling and rotting one of the earliest churches from the inside out, and you give her time to repent? I don't know if I would have done that if I was Jesus. I'd be a little more quick to, I don't know if I'd wait on her to change her mind. It's like, you've done what you've done. It's bad enough. Like, get out of here. But he waited. But she had no intention of giving up a career in the God business. I really wish more people would be into the idea of repentance. I know it's not something that everyone loves to hear about. And I know it's a word that has definitely been part of spiritual abuse in certain circles. But the right and true definition of repentance is beautiful. Repentance before God can be described as a mindset change, remorse over wrongdoing, an attitude change, reorienting, reordering your life, turning around, going in the other direction, an about face, and it's a term closely related to putting our faith in God and following Him. But it's not a one-time thing. You don't repent one time in your life. Whenever you realize you've been thinking something untrue or partnering with darkness in any little way, you have an opportunity to cut ties with it and be free. And that's done by repenting. 22 and 23, he says, I'm about to lay her low along with her partners as they play their sex and religion games. The bastard offspring of their idol idol whoring, I'll kill. Then every church will know that appearances don't impress me. I x-ray every motive and I make sure you get what's coming to you. I don't know how literal it is about killing the offspring, but I think what he's saying, if I had to guess, is that he's putting an end to this poison that is spreading in this church. And I don't know exactly how he ended up doing that, but I know there is a special type of physical illness that does sometimes come upon people who get involved in these things like manipulation, control, divisiveness, idol worship, and unholiness and drama in the church. I am open to the possibility of this person eventually literally having fallen ill at some point. Okay, it's not a good thing to call yourself a Christian and then to come into a group and be doing that. And moral compromise in the church looks different today, but I think it's just as serious. And unfortunately, it's pretty pervasive. Maybe it looks like Christians who think that practicing other religions or new age at the same time is fine. Or Christians who refuse to ask the Lord about how he'd want them to manage their sexual appetites. Okay, verse 24 and 25. I love this. He says, The rest of you Thyatirans who have nothing to do with this out- outrage, who scorn this playing around with the devil that gets paraded as profundity, be assured, I will not make life any harder for you than it already is. Hold on to the truth you have until I get there. There's so much goodness in there. There's a commendation to the faithful. I just freaking love it. And then there's a reference to the second coming. Now, this is kind of surprisingly rare in the letters because you think about Revelation and in our modern context, if you've been taught anything 
about Revelation from the average evangelical teacher, it's all about the second coming, right? But when you really dive in, this is like the first reference to the second coming that you see in the letters. It's notable. Okay, 26 through 28. Here's the reward I have for every conqueror. Everyone who keeps at it, refusing to give up. You'll rule the nations. Your shepherd king rule as firm as an iron staff. Their resistance, fragile as clay pots. This was the gift of my father that he gave to me. I passed it along to you. And with it, the morning star. Okay, so we see that the faithful, the overcomers, those who honor God till the end, will rule with him. This is a massive topic. Let me read you the psalm that this points to. It's Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. End quote. And then verse seven, the psalmist says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, quote, you're my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. End quote. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and will your way will lead to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's heavy stuff. But obviously, I'm a Michael Heiser fan, and I think this is about defeating the powers of darkness, not human kingdoms in any sort of historic temporary capacity. Um, and I think that when we rule with Christ, it will be a matter of dashing like clay pots. The powers of darkness, the, the demonic realm that has a certain amount of free range today will no longer be able to wreak havoc. And we will be part of pronouncing that end, that glorious judgment on wickedness and that entrance of the holy, full entrance of the, the holy perfect kingdom with no more opposition. BibleRef.com says, according to Psalm 2, someday the nations will unite in an effort to dethrone God, but he will defeat them in his wrath and fury. And after defeating the rebels, he will place Jesus, the Messiah, on the throne in Jerusalem and proclaim him king over all the earth. So they're taking it as more of a earthly nations rebellion in the future interpretation. But a lot of times in the Psalms, Michael Heiser asserts that the rulers of the nations are actually demonic Elohim. Anyway, back to BibleRef.com. Matthew 25, 31 through 42 captures the scene in which Jesus comes to earth in glory and all the nations assemble before him for judgment. His earthly kingdom will be glorious with unprecedented peace, prosperity, and holiness. During his reign over the nations, Jesus will grant believers the privilege of sharing in his rule. And you can look at 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Timothy 2 for further reference on that. Okay, so that was BibleRef.com. I thought that was cool. Basically, Christ's faithful overcomers will rule over the enemies of God in the end, will reign with him as he finally completely judges evil. 
1 Corinthians 6 tells us the saints will judge the world and will judge angels. And if you want to fast forward in the book to Revelation chapter 20, you'll see more about when Christ the judge destroys the kingdom of darkness. Now, to fast forward one more little time to Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus explicitly explains that he is the morning star. So the rest of the promise to the church in Thyatira and to every overcomer is the presence of Jesus himself. The Life Application Study Bible says, A morning star appears just before dawn, when the night is darkest, when the world is at its bleakest point, Christ will burst onto the scene, exposing evil with his light of truth and bringing his promised reward. Verse 29, are your ears awake? Listen, listen to the wind's words, the spirit blowing through the churches. In other words, according to the New Living Translation, verse 29, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. So my takeaway from this letter is it takes closeness with Jesus ongoing, deepening friendship with Christ to overcome. Otherwise, we are all likely to slip into some sort of compromise because it's difficult not to. We need to practice his presence. And my prayer for this year ahead, 2024, is that each believer is able to draw nearer to God in their everyday life, able to apprentice under the Lordship of Christ, learn from him, sit at his feet, worship him throughout our days. That's really what we're created for. That's really why we're here. And that's what's going to bring us into the the kingdom coming with you know steadfastness that we'll be able to stand firm. We'll be the overcomers that he's talking about. So let's pray. God, I pray you'd bless each and every person listening to this podcast. I pray you would protect them from the powers of darkness that try to pull us away from your truth, your goodness, your love, God. I pray you touch our minds and Lord. We pray for revelation in our own lives. We pray you teach us more about you, Jesus. Show us how you work. Show us where you're working in the world and how to partner with you. Show us who you are deeper and deeper, like more this year than ever before. I pray your richest blessings and all the things of your kingdom to come into each life under the sound of my voice. And I pray your blessing, God. Your blessing never comes with screens attached. It's just love and it's goodness and it's pure. Every gift is full of light when it comes from you, Father. And I pray those gifts would fall into each of our lives as we pursue you with everything we have. Pray these things in Jesus' name. You have called me friend. I am welcomed in. The table set for two. And my darkest foe is enraged to know now I commune with you I'm no longer a slave to fear I am a child of God I'm no longer a slave to fear I
was a still small sound he doesn't surround us with barricades he doesn't surround us with weapons of war he doesn't need to he just reminds Cherished by the king Lift your voice And sing I'm no longer A slave to fear No I am a child Of God Yeah I'm no longer A slave to fear I am set me free.